6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Job, chapters 40 and 41. By the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee profane, uh, as profane out of the mountain of God. And I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of uh, thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities. By the iniquity of thy merchandise, therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee, and it will devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. All that know thee among the people shall be appalled at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. That's obviously looking way, way ahead. I mention these two places because I think they're uh, analogous to what we're encountering in Job. Because I think Job is, ta- uh, I think God is talking indeed about a literal Leviathan on the one hand, and yet the language reaches beyond that. So one of the things you want to be sensitive to, you have to come to your own conclusions about this, is that seems to be much more in view here than simply an earthly creature. There may be, the real point here is a spiritual application. So let's step back. Uh, we look at these creatures. Some, you know, some people think these creatures are mythical and legendary, like the unicorn or like dragons. But while they may have actually been real cre- uh, creatures, they also may be being used here symbolically about that which is invisible and supernatural. And as I say, Scripture has many examples of this all through Scripture. We looked at uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel, but we find the same thing in Daniel. We find the same thing in Zechariah. We find the same thing in the Revelation. They're all full of examples of beasts that rise up um, and out of the sea or out of the earth that signify far more than a just creature. There's something much, they're, they're, they're uh, idiomatic of something much larger, movements or leaders, invisible or supernatural powers. An example of this occurs in Isaiah 27, verse 1. In Isaiah 27, verse 1, we have the Leviathan talked about. In, the, in that day, the Lord, verse, Isaiah 27, verse 1, in that day the Lord, with his sore and great strong sword, shall punish Leviathan the piercing serpent, even Leviathan that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. What's he talking about? He's not just talking about the last of the dinosaurs. He's using that idiomatically of something far deeper. The Hebrew names in all these things are very significant. The word behemoth for the land animal is actually the plural for beasts. And it, and it thus suggests maybe all the beasts lumped together, although here clearly the text is, is being very specific. Probably a brachiosaurus is the, the opinion of most experts, uh, idiomatic, if you will, of what we commonly call dinosaurs. The Leviathan, the term actually in the Hebrew means the folded one. 
the folded one. Or I might say the twisted one, okay? Uh, one that's the twisted or folded serpent. He's called the, the dragon of the sea in Isaiah. Now, we notice here in Job, we have something very interesting going on. We have God speaking of two super animals. One of the land, one of the sea, right? When you get to Revelation 13, there are two beasts that rise. One from the earth and one from the sea. I'll actually just put the other around. The first one comes out of the sea and the second one comes from the earth. But behind, and there clearly in the book of Revelation, they are governments or leaders or, or, or actually personages leading large governments and so forth. But behind each of these is also identified in the chapter just prior, the one that's really behind him. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 and 10, you may want to look that up, it speaks of that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And we know from that passage there was a third of them that went, it got cast out with him. In the next verse, though, it also identifies Satan with his main title. What does the word Satan really mean? He's the accuser of our brethren. The accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before God day and night. Satan has been accusing Job in this book, and Satan right now is accusing us before the throne. He is our accuser. That's what the word really means. You know, it really alarms me when I see Christian leadership attack other Christian leaders, especially in public. There is a procedure in the scripture in Matthew 18 that if you have something odd against a brother, you go to him in private first. If that doesn't go, you go to him in private with, with an elder with you. If that doesn't work, you go to his board. You don't parade this out in public that dishonors God. That's called accusing the brethren. Where does that doctrine come from? From Satan, exactly right. It really disturbs me to see some who make their career publicly attacking other members of the body. Now, it's a very valid ministry to take a false teaching that's been published and compare it to the Bible and show how it's non-biblical. Walter Martin and others, there have been some great men in the past that have been skilled at that, but they always focused on what was taught by what was published and what the Bible says. It wasn't made interpersonal. Never attacked an individual. It's become very fashionable by several people, publicly, to write books or have, have uh, talk show programs or whatever, attacking prominent members of the body of Christ that we may not agree with everything. They may have different views about certain things. They love Jesus Christ. They are brethren in the Lord, independent of some difference of view we might have. We don't attack them publicly. Why? Because that's Satan's work. Satan's work. I won't ask for a show of hands of how many you want to be about Satan's work. <laughs> That's not our job, is it? And uh, we have a policy in our ministry not to comment on any ministries, just to make sure that we're clean on that point. We may talk about false teaching, that such and such a view is not biblical, and here's why. That's a different thing. That's different than accusing the brethren. And it's disturbing about that. You know, it's interesting that Satan's work is to accuse us before the throne. God may allow Satan to test us the way God allowed 
Satan to test Job. He put him through a real ringer here. But Job did pretty well. He had a lot to learn. And one of the most instructive things about the book of Job is to go through it and notice how Job grows. His perspective, his perceptions grow and yet get continually corrected. Remember, Christ um, allowed Satan to test Peter. Remember, in, in, uh, it's in Luke 22, verse 31, 32. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. When thou, he isn't converted yet, he will be. But it's interesting, he didn't pray that Peter, he didn't pray that Peter wouldn't fail. He prayed that Peter's faith wouldn't fail. That's the key issue. That's the key issue. You know why we can't fail? If Satan's our prosecutor, who is our defense counsel? Jesus Christ. He's our defense counsel. Hebrews 7.25, he prays Jesus' job daily is to pray for you. Man, you want a prayer partner? (laughs) You can't beat that one. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25, one you want to remember. Also, 1 John 2, the first couple of verses. Jesus is our advocate. We've got the thing wired because we have the Creator Himself on our side. And that's pretty good odds. Well, we've talked about the anointed cherub in Ezekiel. That, of course, is Nachash, the shining one of Genesis 3. And again, it's the serpent thing. Okay, we've talked about these two animals in a, in a, uh, in a uh, zoological sense, li- tangible, real animals, and they were. We've touched a little bit on the idea that these may be used idiomatically to speak of satanic aspects. But there's another level of possibility here that I want to leave you with. The behemoth is being presented as being very self-sufficient. And we can go back and look at verses 15 through 18 to do that, but in the interest of time, I'll just uh, let you do that. But I want you to notice um, verse 19. In the King James, the way we read it, it says, He is the chief of the ways of God. He that made him can make his sword to approach to him. The Hebrew in that verse, the Hebrew in Job is very difficult, by the way. That's why many different experts have slightly different translations as they try to grapple with what the Hebrew is really saying. The um, uh, New English Bible uh, describes this a little differently. He renders verse 19, He is the chief of God's works, made to be a tyrant over his peers. So here's an animal that is being presented as uh, or seeming to stand for the desire to rule over everyone else, a tyranny over all. It can be you can think of the behemoth as as the exemplar of self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-centeredness. And there's no better description of the enemy that you and I have within us. It's called the flesh. You can look if you will at the behemoth, in a sense, is typifying, idiomatically uh, speaking, of the flesh. It's a genetic defect that we have from Adam. Adam was a direct creation of God, but you and I are derivative, named the natural, of Adam. We have a genetic defect that's called the flesh. It's called sin, propensity for sin. 
That's why God speaks of the conversion as a new birth, a new creation. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as to many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, the B'nai HaElohim, the, the, uh, the direct creation of God. So, okay, let's take another look at the Leviathan. It also may be being presented to go beyond the zoological uh, characteristics, and it may allude metaphorically to, uh, to, to, to uh, him that is a, of a malevolent evil spirit. It says, he beholdeth all things, he is the king over the children of pride, you know. And again, this, as I pointed out, the second, secondary illusion thing is something that we see several times in the career, uh, allude to the career of Satan. He is certainly the father of the children of pride. And of course, in the book of Revelation, Satan is presented as the red dragon. And, uh, this is also picked up in the prophecies of Isaiah. In, uh, well, we saw that Isaiah 27, 1, we saw that when he spoke, that he's going to slay the dragon that is in the sea. In the book of Revelation, just so we tie off our friend, <laughs> I hope he's not a friend, um, uh, the red dragon here. In Revelation chapter 20, John says, I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more until a thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And of course, we know the story. That's called the millennium. There's going to be a thousand year period on the earth where man is without excuse. Everything's going to be perfect. There'll be no shortages. God himself will be ruling with a rod of iron. Uh, Satan will be bound. Man has no excuse. And the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. There'll be no ignorance of the Lord. And under those ideal conditions, it seems, man is still ready to rebel. At the end of a thousand years, Satan's turned loose, and man blows it again. God's final test, his final demonstration of what we're really all about. But fortunately, when you get to Revelation 20, we won't stop at verse 3. You skip down to verse 10. It says, And the devil that deceived them the end, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Satan ultimately, after a thousand years, will also get his due. It's interesting that at the front end, when the second coming occurs, the beast and the false prophet, these two beasts of Revelation 13, are cast into the lake of fire. Satan's not. He's bound for a thousand years in the buso, in the abyss. 1,000 years later, after there's a rebellion and God finally puts that all down, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. But the beast and the false prophet are still there, still burning, still being tormented. There's no annihilation concept here. See, it's outside the dimensionality of time. They are, uh, it, it, there's, there's no, there's, there, it's, it's, it's forever without hope. We can't imagine that. We can't imagine that. Well, anyway, let's uh, tie this off. <laughs> there really is a dragon that we need to be concerned with. And it's far more dangerous than any cloned dinosaur of Jurassic Park fame. <laughs> we all remember the, the famous, the, the very colorful, very provocative fiction by uh, Michael Crichton, his, his novel that was made into a movie, the, you know, Jurassic Park. 
There's something far more, there's a, there's a, a, a dragon far more dangerous than any of those. But the good news is, even that dragon, his destiny is sealed. How is that destiny sealed? By an empty tomb that we celebrate on Easter morning. Jesus has assured the final victory. So the next time somebody brings up dinosaurs, then why not really get into it? They want to talk about dinosaurs. Now you can you know, organize some of your notes on here and you can really get into it. Remember, he brought it up, right? And, uh, it's a great witnessing opportunity if we do our homework. So in chapter 41, we encounter the Leviathan, a water animal that may also infer to an untamable world system. And uh, I want you to compare Job 41, the first half a dozen verses, with Revelation 17, the whore that sits on many waters that are identified, the waters there are identified as peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. This world system, how the Leviathan may be referring to how, how unconquerable it is. It's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, God interjects sort of a, a parenthetical challenge in verses 10 and 11 there in chapter 41. That's almost analogous to Jeremiah's quip in Jeremiah 12, verse 5. He says, If thou hast run with footmen and they have wearied thee, how canst thou contend with horses? But God is saying to Job, If you can't contend with these, how can you contend with a larger issue. That's really the thought that's behind that. And God deals with it all the time. How's Job going to do that? And so, uh, so God goes ahead and, you know, uh, amplifies the Leviathan's ability to defend itself. It obviously, you know, is analogous to a deeply entrenched, well-defended system that can't be overthrown, the world system. And, uh, awesome fairness and fighting power, invulnerable and irresistible. The key attribute of the world system is pride. And that's also the Leviathan. He's the king of all the sons of pride. Well, anyway, what, what's happened to Job here by now is Job is, God has brought Job up to the point to an awareness that the very things that Job has in his own heart and life, they describe forces over which he has no control. I say that again. These are the very things that Job has in his own heart and in his life. These are forces over which he alone, unaided, has no control. So at this point, God has made it very clear to Job that, that what we were informed of at the very beginning of the book, we were told that there was a satanic challenge going on here. Job didn't know that then. See, behind his sickness and behind his protracted agony, there was an intense struggle with the satanic power. Job didn't know that. We knew it because we were tipped off in chapter 1 what was really going on. Job didn't know that. All he knew is everything was turning pretty, pretty rough. But God is teaching Job that there's something much deeper. And, uh, but now at last, Job is given a strong hint that the reason behind his illness is not his own failure or his own willful misdeeds, but a more serious problem that's embedded in his very nature that he wasn't even aware existed. And yet that very thing is a destroying him. That's what God has to deal with uh, with Job, and this is what he has to deal with us, in us. So Job's first reaction will be, in the next chapter, the Klein chapter, a new view of God himself. And that will be our concluding topic next time. 
it's going to be, I think next time is a, is a short chapter, but it's a good opportunity. We're going to review the, really understand what God has been doing to Job throughout these 42 chapters and what he intends to do with us. Because our problems are not external, they're internal. Our problems are with ourselves. Job's problem was not the loss of his possessions and the loss of his family and his illness. It was himself in his heart. And God's using this whole experience to teach Job some things that he could not learn any other way. And it's very, if, if, if you, um, if you want to get into this subject personally and very practically, say, gee, Chuck, uh, how do I, how do I deal with, I'm going through a dark time. I'm, I've got this, that, and the other thing you list. God is, I, I'm really in a dark, dark period. Uh, how do I deal with that practically? I have a suggestion. My wife has written a book called Faith in the Night Seasons. She deals with the, what some people call the dark night of the soul and similar things. God uses that time. Nothing can happen to you that he doesn't allow. And he, I mean, the question is, why is he allowing it? Well, there's lots of possible reasons, but one of which is that it's his way of drawing you into more intimacy with him. And if you want to understand what that really means and how to really deal with that in real terms, in real life, with real, while you're undergoing real darkness, real hurts, uh, I encourage you to take a look at the book. I was quite startled when the, the well-known theologian John Ankerberg called that book God-breathed. That's a very unusual thing for him to say about any book. And uh, yet he did uh, have that reaction to Faith in the Night Seasons. I encourage you to take a look at that. If you'd like more information on dinosaurs and all that, again, I encourage you to contact Kent Hovind at the Creation Science Evangelism thing in, in 29 Cummins Road, Pensacola, Florida. Zip 32503. His phone number is 859-479-3466. He's uh, got a website, www.drdino, Dr. Dino. Dot com, and because I, I, I resisted the temptation to show you a lot of his slides because it would have taken too long, but he's got tremendous materials, good videos, excellent materials available that uh, kids, adults, whatever you'll get a big case. Very humorous. He's a, he makes it makes a lot of fun of it. Also, the other or the number of organizations I can't talk about this without mentioning the Institute for Creation Research in San Diego. Uh, in, uh, down in Santee, California. They have a wonderful museum, wonderful materials on this, world experts on staff that are really outstanding. And there's also Answers in Genesis in Brisbane, Australia. And, and there are a number of tremendous groups that focus in this area that I encourage you to avail of those materials. So, But next time we will uh, summarize the whole book of Job. And I can tell you candidly, it'll probably be full of surprises because some of the common summaries of the book of Job are not on the mark. Uh, if, if Job is about far more than why do the innocent suffer, it's about the reality of God and our relationship to him and far deeper. Nowhere in God's dialogue at the climax of the book from chapters 38 through 42 does God deal with why do the innocent suffer in the, in the sense that we would normally think. So it's going to be an interesting wrap-up. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. It's by our, by our hearts. Well, Father, we, we thank you for the book of Job, and we thank you for this time together. And we, we do ask you, Father, to send your Holy Spirit to give us discernment as we realize, Father, that your word can only be discerned 
by the Spirit. We pray, Father, you would give us that discernment to understand what it is you're really telling us by these allusions to these strange creatures of the past. We do pray, Father, that we would really appropriate to our lives the lessons here that you provided in the agonies and travails of Job. We do pray, Father, that you would help us to understand. And we pray, Father, that the lessons not be wasted. We pray, Father, that you would instruct us through your word and through your spirit that we might more fully appreciate who you are, that we might more fully understand who we are, that we also might fully, more fully appreciate the extremes that you've gone to to provide for our welfare, to provide for bridging this incredible gulf between us through the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the gift of eternal life that's available for the asking through him. We do, Father, ask you right now to receive us We confess our sins, which are more than we can number. We confess our presumptions, our ingratitudes, and the many, many ways we find to grieve you, Father. We confess it that we might be cleansed. We're thankful, Father, that you've promised that if we do confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which is possible because of the whole plan of redemption that you've gone to such lengths to put into force. So, Father, we also pray that through your Holy Spirit you would illuminate the path before us, help us to understand what you would have of us in response to all these things, that we each might be more fruitful stewards and more pleasing in thy sight as we commit ourselves this night into your hands without reservation. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Job. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music